Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you're looking at the Bible, you ought to find it on page 1087. Uh, one of the things that amazes me, and if I'm being honest, sometimes annoys me about our kids is their ability to watch or listen to the same thing over and over. Uh, if they find a book they like, they don't want to read it once. They want to read it four times. And they're often content to watch the same movie or the same episode of Peppa Pig for several days in a row. And I'm more of the watch it once and then maybe not watch it again for a very long time kind of person. Now, Let's, let's, be, you know, let's be honest, I was the same way when I was a kid, as many of us were, I'm sure. Um, except things were more analog back then. I had a VHS tape of the Disney movie, The Sword and the Stone, that I had watched so many times. The first 10 minutes basically were non-existent. So you would put it in, and you would just kind of have to fast forward to get it to the part that actually worked. And so what happened was I, I watched it so many times and I, I, I was deeply familiar with the story all except the very beginning. I didn't know how it began. And I suspect that some of us are like that with the Christmas story. We're, we're familiar with all the, the beats about Bethlehem, about Mary and Joseph, no room in the inn, swaddling cloths, angels, glory to God in the highest, all that kind of stuff. But when you pick up Luke's account of the gospel, that's not where he begins at all. Not in Bethlehem, not with Mary or Joseph. He begins in Jerusalem, in the temple. And when you, when you kind of step back and look at the first two chapters of Luke and how he tells the whole infancy narrative of Christ, he actually begins and ends in the temple in Jerusalem. And so he begins... Again, not with Mary or Joseph, but with a man named Zechariah. And after we've made our way through this story, I want us to ask at the end, why? Why does Luke begin this way? But first, we need to hear the story itself. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, just after Luke has sort of given us his introduction to the book. He begins to say, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son." And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when, the, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we ask you to help us this morning um, by your word to, to understand what you have said to us. And God, I pray that uh, as we look at how Luke, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, begins this story, uh, Lord, that just as we do during Advent, that we would not try to rush ahead and see what's going to happen, but that we would, we would slow down and ask, Lord, why have you said this to us? Why have you in your infinite wisdom deemed that we need to know this story? God, would you help us in that way this morning? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This story um, has all the markers of a major biblical event. I mean, if this story, if you sort of picked this up and transported it to the Old Testament, you would know as the reader something big is about to happen. It has uh, a husband and wife who are, are childless, and uh, it's not just that they had not yet had children. Luke says in verse 7 that Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. He doesn't tell us how old they were, just that they were advanced in years, so you can you can read between the lines there, whatever you think. Their prospects of children seemed long gone, a lot like Abraham and Sarah. And while Elizabeth calls her barrenness in verse 25, she calls it a reproach among people. Luke makes it clear that their childless state was not a sign of God's judgment. On the contrary, before he tells us that they were childless in verse 7, he tells us in verse 6 that they were righteous. He tells us of their righteousness before God and their blamelessness according to the law. And whenever the Bible describes someone as blameless, that's an important word because it does not mean sinless. Blameless is a way of saying these people observed the law with all of its sacrifices for sin and so on. So they were careful to listen to what God had said and to do it. And part of that meant that they made sacrifices for their sin. So blameless doesn't mean that they were sinless. It means that they were in right standing with God. They were sinners who were nevertheless in relationship with the Lord. So Zechariah and Elizabeth were not perfect, but they were walking faithfully with Him and toward others. Yet, although that was true, they still found themselves with this deeply personal crisis. And that is that they didn't have children in a time when not having children was 
to many people a sign of God's judgment. It was a sign of shame and of reproach. What I want you to, to notice, though, as, as we make our way through the story is that Luke is, as much as he's interested in that personal crisis that Zachariah and Elizabeth had and the joy that John the Baptist was going to bring them because of how it was going to alleviate that personal crisis, he's also interested in something bigger, that there was not only a personal crisis, but there was also this national crisis of the fact that uh, God had not spoken to His people in over 400 years. So there's a personal crisis that Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless. There was a national crisis that God had been silent for over 400 years. The last time God had spoken to His people through one of His prophets was through the prophet Malachi over four centuries before Zechariah found himself in the temple on this day. Now, Luke does, does not, not explicitly tell us that, but he does hint at it. He tells us that Herod was king of Judea. He tells us in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, which is a way of saying the people of Israel are under the thumb of Rome. This is a time when they were under the oppression of, of Rome, and there was a lot of anticipation for that reason that God was about to do something big, that God was, was maybe about to, to send them a Messiah and to redeem them from this oppression, much the way He had redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt and much the way He had redeemed them from their oppression during the exile in the Old Testament. But more important than the, the occupation of Rome was the silence of God. That God's people had endured four centuries of silence where they did not hear a word from the Lord. All of that serves as the backdrop to what takes place here. Luke tells us in verse 9 that Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now... There's, there's a right way and a wrong way that you could understand what happens here. The wrong way to, would be to say, well, you know, this was just kind of all happenstance, right? Uh, but of course, we know from Proverbs 16.33 that God is sovereign over something even as seemingly small and random as the casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay, but you still might say, okay, sure, you know, God is sovereign over the, the, the casting of lots, but, but this probably happened many times to Zechariah, right? You know, where, you know, hey, it, it's just kind of random. The lot fell to you, Zechariah, and surely he had been there tons of times. Imagine if, imagine if every week, Monday morning, Colby and I come up here, and we flip a coin to see who's going to preach the next Sunday. Seems random. We know God's in charge of it. But statistically, you would expect if we did that, if we flip a coin every Monday morning, okay, heads, it's Colby, tails, it's me. Statistically, you would think we would both preach with relative frequency, right? It'd be kind of weird if we went a whole year and it always landed on Colby. I might say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me, you know, or vice versa. But... That's not what's happening here with Zechariah. There were not two priests 
there were not a handful of priests. It's not like there were 10 or 20 so that, you know, they cast lots and, and surely it's going to fall to Zechariah many times. There were thousands of priests. And they served in many different capacities. But this particular capacity where they cast the lights and, okay, Zechariah, it's your turn to go into the holy place and to offer incense for the people. This was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Once this happened, it would never happen again. Once Zechariah goes into the temple and offers the incense, his name gets taken out of the hat, so to speak. This is the first time he's ever done this, and it's the last time he would ever do it. So it's not, I don't want you to think of this as, well, this is just a typical day in the office for Zechariah. He's just going in, you know, here's the incense, done this a bunch of times, I'll probably do it again next month, that kind of thing. No, this is the first time he's ever done it, and it's the last time he'll ever do it. It was a highly special and unusual day, and of course it was about to get a whole lot more special and unusual. Now, before we get to what happens in the temple, I want you to notice something that Luke does in the story. So he tells us in verse 9, Zechariah had gone into the temple to burn the incense. He's going to tell us in verse 11 what happened while he was in the temple. But in verse 10, notice what he does. In verse 10, Luke says, I don't want you to forget about the rest of the people, because this is not just a story about Zechariah. In verse 10, he zooms out and he tells us what's going on outside the temple. Look at verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So verse 9, Zechariah has gone in there to burn the incense. Verse 11, he sees an angel standing near the altar of incense. But verse 10, he says, now don't forget... Outside, while Zechariah is inside, at the very hour when he's burning the incense, there's a whole multitude of people out there praying, praying with him. So Luke wants to remind us that what's about to happen is not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth's sake. It's not just to alleviate that personal crisis that this, this one couple didn't have a child. This is for the whole nation. And ultimately, it's going to be for the whole world. Now, back into the temple. Now we're in verse 11. Now Zechariah is there. He's burning the incense. And suddenly, there's an angel standing near the altar of incense. And it's striking how realistic Luke is about the way Zechariah reacts to seeing this angel. Sometimes I think people have this idea uh, that... People in biblical times must have been just, they must have seen angels all the time, right? They just, you know, you're going to the market, there's an angel. You're in the, in the temple burning incense, there's an angel. Uh, you're sitting at home uh, cooking, there's an angel. And so it's just like, oh, hey, you know, well, this is the third time that's happened today, right? But that does not square with how the Bible itself tells us people reacted when they saw angels. Luke says in verse 12 that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And we know that something very similar is going to happen to, to Mary just a few verses later. But when Luke says that Zechariah was troubled and fear fell upon him, he is emphasizing that 
here's the Matt Simmons paraphrase, Zechariah was freaked out. This was not something he was expecting. This is something that disturbed him. This is something that he found unsettling, that he found terrifying. This was the most special day of his career, and yet even still, he's not expecting to witness an angelic visitation. And of course, in response, Gabriel says in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And that's the way we see angels respond often, don't we? Don't be afraid. So there must have been something awfully terrifying about that. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, I want us to pause there for a second. If I could respectfully uh, cut Gabriel off in mid-sentence, I want us to ask a question, and that is, which prayer does he mean? When, when Gabriel says that Zechariah's prayer had been heard, to what prayer is Gabriel referring? Of course, neither Gabriel nor Luke tells us that. They don't answer that question explicitly. It's not like Luke says, you know, Zechariah was in the temple and he was praying that God would blank, and then Gabriel said, your prayer's been heard. He doesn't do that. For all we know, the angel may not even be referring to a prayer that Zechariah had just prayed. He could be referring to something Zechariah had prayed for a decade ago or something like that. So maybe he means Zechariah had been praying for a child and God had heard his prayer. That's possible. If you read the rest of verse 13, after I cut Gabriel off, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So it, it kind of looks like, first glance, Gabriel means your prayer for a child has been heard, and, it, and it's about to be answered. But it's also possible that Gabriel means that God had heard Zechariah's prayer on behalf of Israel, because Gabriel says this in the context of Zechariah's formal intercession. He, he's not there in the temple to pray for himself or for his family. He's not there in the temple. His job is not to go in there and to pray, Lord, would you give me a child? His job, and we've, we've already been told that he's a righteous man, that he follows the law. If he's doing his job, then he's there interceding, not for himself, not for his family, but for the nation. Luke has just mentioned the whole multitude of people outside praying along with him at that very moment. So, so it could be that Gabriel means your prayer for, for Israel has been heard. Notice what Gabriel says in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now here's the thing. We don't have to choose between those two possibilities, do we? Both of those can be true at the same time because the birth of John is going to remedy two things at once. Two crises are going to be remedied in one birth. The childlessness of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the 400-year silence of God. So through the birth of this son, God is bringing joy and gladness not only to one couple but to many people. Gabriel says in verse 14, You... Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So there's going to be joy for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and there's going to be joy for many. Now, why, why will John's birth be such a cause 
for joy. Gabriel gives the answer in verse 15. So he's just said, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For, because, here's the reason why John's birth will be such a cause for joy. Because he will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. That is why you're going to have joy and gladness, Zechariah. And that's why many will rejoice at his birth, because he will be great before the Lord. And what does that mean to be great before the Lord? Gabriel goes on to explain. I want us to think of two markers of greatness that Gabriel prophesies for John. First is his character. This is what it's going to mean for John to be great before the Lord. He's going to be set apart, Gabriel says in the second half of verse 15. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So this must be why we call him John the Baptist, right? He's not going to drink wine or strong drink. I'm kidding, of course. Um, the, the point of describing him that way is to show us that John is consecrated to the Lord in a unique way, in a way that others would not necessarily be, much the way that Samson was in the Old Testament and the prophet Samuel. There are so many echoes here of these stories of, of the Old Testament of God raising somebody up, a, a barren wife, an angelic visitor, a prayer, um, some, some sort of consecration of saying that he's not going to drink wine or strong drink. More importantly than that, Gabriel says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John is being described the way an Old Testament prophet would be. And that seems to be the point, that his job is unique, which is why it's so important that his character is to be above reproach. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit because he has an important task. And that's the second marker of his greatness. The first is his character, and the second is his mission. His mission. God has a unique one-time mission for John. It's a lot like the mission that the prophets of the Old Testament had, but this one is singular as well. Look at verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Almost all four Gospels describe John in this way of preparing the way for the Lord. And every now and then you'll, you'll see some knucklehead on the History Channel or something like that say, well, you know, Christians didn't actually believe that Jesus was God until, you know, the 300s A.D. or something like that. And to that I say, have you read the Gospels? Because they say John is the prophet that Isaiah said was going to prepare the way for the Lord. L-O-R-D. And you don't call somebody the Lord unless He is G-O-D, God. So this is John's mission. 
that in the Old Testament, whenever God was about to do something remarkable, He would often tell the people to consecrate themselves. That's what He does at Mount Sinai. I'm about to give you the law, so consecrate yourselves. Or in the case of the exile, He sent the prophets to call them to repentance. Repent. Turn back to me. God has raised up John for a similar purpose. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is John's mission. He's going to reform. He's going to turn people, call people to repentance. This is something that you, you find John doing as he's preaching a gospel of repentance and he's preparing people for the Lord's arrival. Now there's a lot more we could say about this story, but this is just the first part of it. I told you at the beginning we would circle back to the question, why does Luke begin this way? I mean, this is a remarkable story. By all indications, it seems like John is a very special figure, and he certainly was. But John was also a transitional figure. And what I mean is he has this incredible origin story, and he's very important for a while, and then he just fades away. He gets his head cut off, and he's gone, and nobody talks about him anymore. Why does Luke begin by putting so much emphasis on this person who is transitional? I want to see if we can draw out a few practical conclusions from that. I want to try to point us to three takeaways for why does Luke begin this way. First, he begins this way to demonstrate to us that Jesus is greater than all. Jesus is greater than all. Um, as amazing as this story is, it is a prelude to what is about to happen when Gabriel visits Mary in Nazareth. Same angel, different town, different person. John may be preparing the way for the Lord, but only Jesus is going to be called Christ the Lord. And the specialness of the circumstances surrounding John's birth is going to highlight even more the uniqueness of Jesus. As significant and as joy-giving as John's birth is, John is not the Messiah. He is an usher. And when I say John was an usher, that's how John described himself in John 3. He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm a groomsman. I'm an usher. I'm a friend of the groom. I'm somebody who comes in and sets up chairs. I'm somebody who helps get people seated for the main event. I'm somebody who helps get things ready for the bridegroom to appear. And the reason why there was to be such joy at John's arrival 
was because it signaled the nearness of Jesus' advent. I mean, think about if you, you know, think about a wedding you've been to, and, and sometimes the, the first people who get brought in, you know, are the, the grandmothers and that sort of thing, but you have these groomsmen and these bridesmaids who are coming in. And there's this excitement that starts to build, not because anybody gives a lick about seeing any of those people, but because it means that the big thing is about to happen. That's the point. That's the point of the excitement of this story, is that this is, these are the first notes of Pockle Bell's canon. These are the first notes of the song that means that here comes the bride is about to happen. So many people rejoiced at John's birth, but John says that his joy came from knowing that the true Messiah had come. So when we hear Gabriel say that John will be great before the Lord, we need to remember that Jesus is greater than all. He is not just great before the Lord. He is great because He is the Lord. So Jesus is greater than all. The second takeaway for us is that we should strive for the kind of greatness John had. I mean, the, the best we could hope to be is to be great in the way that John was great. We don't need to be Jesus. None of us are the Messiah, but we should strive to be great in the same way that John was. I'm not saying anything earth-shattering when I say that the world measures greatness differently than God does. It's important that Gabriel says he's going to be great before the Lord. Not just great however you define greatness, but great in the eyes of the Lord. The world says being great means being rich, being strong, being powerful, being influential, never admitting that you're wrong, owning those who ever cross you, that kind of thing. But John was deemed to be great because he was set apart for a divine purpose, because he lived a life of righteousness and devotion to the Lord. And he was great because he fulfilled the mission that God had given him. So he was great because he had a holy character and because he had a singular drive to see the mission that God had given him fulfilled. John could have tried to build a bigger platform for himself, and there were people around him who tried to do that. There were some of his followers who said, wait a minute, we've been following you. Who's this Jesus guy? He's taking away the spotlight from you. John could have said, you're right. I deserve this influence. I've been doing all this groundwork, and here comes Jesus, and everybody's all Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Instead, John carries out the task that God had given him, then he gladly fades into the background. He's, he's the one who said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I'm not worthy to bend down and untie Jesus' shoes. That's how low John saw himself. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the kind of greatness we should pursue. The kind of greatness that is content with faithfulness in obscurity. That if, if I'm faithful and nobody else sees it but God, then that's enough. The kind of greatness that says, I want Jesus to be magnified. I don't want people to pay attention to me. I want people to pay attention to Jesus. I want my life to shine a light on Him. So we should strive for the kind of greatness John had. And the third takeaway is that God uses ordinary people with imperfect faith. 
We've thought about John, but what is it that we can learn from Zechariah? Zechariah is someone who, who practiced ordinary faithfulness. He was righteous. He was blameless according to what God had said. And yet, he was not perfect. Um, he initially failed to believe what God promised him through Gabriel. And because of this, God issued a temporary judgment against Zechariah. Look at verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Notice, God's promise will be fulfilled regardless of whether Zechariah believes it or not. God's promise will be fulfilled. And until that time, Zechariah is going to be unable to speak. And some people think he may have also been unable to, to hear as well because later on in chapter 1, people are going to have to sign to him and write things down for him and that sort of thing. So God's ability to do what He has said He will do is not contingent upon the strength of our faith. It's not like God is hamstrung and, oh, I want to do this incredible thing, but you don't believe enough. God is, His ability to do what He said He will do is not contingent on the strength of our faith. It's contingent on the trustworthiness of God's character. And so in that way, Zechariah is actually a good example for us. He's not a superhero of the faith. He's not this guy who just always believed and never wavered. He has doubts and questions. He wants to believe, which is why he asked Gabriel, what's the sign for this? How do, how do I know this is going to happen? He, he wants to believe it, but he's kind of having a hard time wrapping his mind around it. And so he needed his faith to be strengthened. His faith was weak and wavering, and yet he was still called righteous. He was in right standing with God. He was faithful in so many ordinary ways, and God was still able to use him with his ordinary faithfulness and his imperfect faith. There's, a, there's an awful lot we can learn from these supporting characters in the Christmas story because like them, like Zechariah and like John, you and I, we are not the Messiah. We're just people who, who ought to be trusting in Him, who ought to be pointing others toward Him, who ought to be living to see Him magnified, and who ought to be waiting with anticipation for Him to come again. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. This is an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. And, and uh, we, we have an advantage over Zechariah. Um, and that is that we, we know the rest of the story. And we see that as incredible as the things God had promised uh, were, they came true. And yet, uh, it's, it's not lost on me that we just spent some time in, in First and Second Peter where the primary focus of those books is people who've been promised that Jesus is coming again, and they're having a hard time believing it. In other words, they're an awful lot like Zechariah was. And so, um, so my, my prayer for you as I've been sort of working my way through this this week is that, Lord, would you help our unbelief, right? Would you, we believe, help our unbelief. Maybe that's where you find yourself. I believe, 
Help my unbelief. That's where Zechariah was. That's where we find ourselves often. Um, and so let's strive to be as he was, trusting in Christ, trusting in the fulfillment of God's promises, even though that faith is often weak and wavering, and, and pointing others toward him and living to see him magnified. So let's pray together. Lord, we, I, I, pray, I pray that again for us this morning. Um, Lord, I, I can say I believe Help my unbelief. Lord, so often it is easy to focus only on the things that we can see right in front of us um, and not to, to see the things that we can't see yet. And that's why your word calls it hope. And so, Lord, I pray that this Advent season you would increase our hope, increase our sense of anticipation for what we cannot yet see. Lord, that we would be like Zechariah, imperfect, and yet trusting in you. Um, Lord, if there's anyone who is listening to the sound of my voice right now who is not trusting in you, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would work in their heart to, to grant faith to them, to draw them to trust in Jesus and to turn from their sins. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would do what you did through John when you turned many to the Lord their God. So Lord, would you do that now? Would you help us to respond rightly? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.